As I mentioned already, this opening verse of chapter 10 is often used as a proof text for the prayers of God's people for lost souls. Again, I know in this denomination, such a statement is not controversial. You've been raised in the understanding that it is right and proper to pray for God to save the lost. And this text is often used in that regard. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I understand the context is very particular. Paul's burden is for his own kith and kin. And yet he is clearly praying for those who, as he prays for them, are not saved. Regardless of God's purpose and election, he is praying for souls who, at the time of his praying, do not know the Savior. It is prayer for those out of Christ. I certainly want to focus on that theme again tonight. Because the issue for Paul is his concern for his brethren. Now, as we start chapter 10, I want to remind you that each of these three chapters begin with some personal note from the apostle. Remember, chapter 9 began with his burden. Verse number 2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Chapter 9 begins with that personal expression of his burden. Chapter 10 then begins uh, with his personal testimony of praying for their salvation. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And then chapter 11 begins with his own testimony. As he sees himself as an Israelite, as part of ethnic Israel, and yet one who's come to faith in Christ, thereby giving proof that God hath not cast away his people. Verse 1, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite. And the inference is, I'm an Israelite who's come to trust in Jesus as my Savior. And so we're seeing again in these chapters, Paul is wrestling in his own mind regarding the promises of God for his own people. It is a very particular and historical context, yet with tremendous ongoing significance. And so these three chapters clearly are a unit of thought. And we've said already we should not see one without considering all three closely. And you'll see that also here in chapter 10. There is a continuation of the thought at the end of chapter 9. Remember how chapter 9 ends? We saw last time with the salvation of Gentiles, they've been called and they've been called to faith in Christ Jesus, and in so doing, have attained unto righteousness. But the Jews have not attained, verse 31, to the law of righteousness. And Paul has reflected upon their spiritual privilege. He's reflected upon them in verse number 31, that they followed after the law of righteousness. We know that their privilege in verse number 27, in light of their covenantal promises, they were as the sand of the sea, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham. A privileged people. And yet tragically, they have spurned their spiritual privilege. And it's that thought of their spurning their privilege that I believe leads to Paul's prayer here in chapter 10, verse number 1. In light of their forsaking of the gospel, my heart's desire is that they might be saved. And so in many ways, tonight we're going to be turning over similar things uh, as we did last Lord's Day evening. But I trust tonight with a recognition that we'll pray in light of these particular truths. One thing we should note at this point also, when you compare chapter 9 and chapter 10, 
we should see that the truths of chapter 9 do not hinder the prayer of chapter 10. Chapter 9 is that great passage on the sovereignty of God in salvation. We saw verse number 18. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And as we saw in verse number 19, the implication of the question at the end of verse number 19 is that no one can resist the will of God. God's sovereign counsel and will will indeed be accomplished. And so the thinking of some is to challenge us, if you understand chapter 9 that way, then you shouldn't bother praying. If you see God's sovereignty in such a way, uh, those who are the vessels of mercy will enjoy mercy, and those who are vessels under destruction will indeed go into destruction. If you see it that way, and God's sovereign over the outcomes of these things, then surely there is no point in praying. You believe that God has foreordained everything, so therefore He'll save the elect whether we pray or not. In response to that, I think it's worth asking such a component or an opponent, sorry, to to Bible truth, the very simple question, do you not believe that God has foreordained, foreordained everything? So they'll say to you and say, well, we, we, we see that if this is true, therefore we shouldn't be praying. Well, then ask them, do you believe that things are outside the foreordination of God? Are there things that can happen without God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge? If that's the case, then who has the ultimate authority? Is it the sinner's free will? Is it Satan's power? Whatever it is, there must be some power that's greater than God's will because God's will can be frustrated in such a situation. And so the Bible is clear that God has indeed foreordained whatever comes to pass. But I think this objection also misunderstands the nature of prayer. In prayer, we are not asking God to change his mind. We're not asking God to change the eternal counsel. We're not coming to God and saying, Lord, uh, you have called this person unto retribution, unto destruction. That's a bad idea. You should change your mind. Such would be foolish and indeed blasphemous when it comes to your approach to God in prayer. God does all things well and wisely, and his eternal decree is wise and just and good. And so in prayer, we are not so much coming to ask God to change his mind. And some of us have been raised again in broad evangelical circles where the prayers that have been offered have almost been of that nature. Lord, hear me and do what I ask you to do. We are not persuading God. We are essentially coming before God in his will, asking God to show mercy in the setting of his just wrath against sinners. We're asking God to do what he's promised to do. Prayer is, in that sense, a means for us to show our faith to God as the Savior. We recognize, as it says behind my head, salvation is of the Lord. And in prayer, we come to God and we say, Lord, you have promised to save, therefore we ask that you would save sinners. That the God who has foreordained the end, foreordained the end, has also foreordained the means to the end, including prayer. And as such commands us to ask and to seek and to knock. God understands from before time began that he will execute his will in connection with the means that he chooses to use, namely prayer and the preaching of the word of God. We'll come to see preaching in coming weeks in chapter 10. 
the importance of preaching as the means that God uses to bring souls to Christ. But prayer is also one of those means that God has chosen to use. And so he hears our prayers. He does what he's promised in response to our prayers as we seek his face and call upon him. And so regardless of all the theological understanding of these things, to be honest, verse 1 of chapter 10 seals the issue. Even if we can't quite square off all the theology and all the understanding of this, we find Paul under inspiration in the inspired word of God praying for lost souls. So how we square it off is ultimately helpful to us, but not the end of the world if we can't do it. Paul's praying for lost souls. He does so under inspiration, and therefore he provides for us an inspired example to follow. And we would do well to follow his example and ask for God to save the lost around us today. Yes, he's praying particularly for lost Jews, but there are lessons to learn regarding prayer for all and for any sinner. So first of all, please note in this prayer for the lost, please note the heart of his prayer, the heart of his prayer. What did you pray for in the past week? Just stop. That's what you're doing right now. And what one thing or two things did you pray for in the past week? Well, the answers to that question in your own mind right now is a revelation of the burdens of your heart. We pray for those things that burden our souls. And those things that are upon our hearts are things we take to God in prayer. And the things that we neglect to pray for are clearly things that are not burdening our hearts. This prayer arises out of Paul's heart. Brethren, my heart's desire to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The foundation of his prayer is the desire within his heart. His choice, his will, his preference is that his people Israel would be saved and come to Christ Jesus. It's a prayer of burden and concern. It's a deep, wholehearted prayer. And one of the reasons that we will not pray for something and we will not pray perhaps for lost souls is that we do not share this burden. Remember chapter 9? We read already Paul's burden there. He has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for his brethren and his kinsmen according to the flesh. For they are outside of Christ. They're accursed of God. They're under the anathema of God. And they're away from the Savior. And he's a burden for their souls. And that burden, of course, finds expression in prayer. He's, he's alone with God. And when you're alone with God, you can speak freely. And you can express the desires and the burdens of your soul. Paul is showing us his heart here. You know, please understand, religion is a matter of the heart. We are made by God with emotions. We're made by God in such a way that we have desires and choices and a, and a will. And the crucial matter is that our will and our emotions are according to God's will. That's the issue. We have a heart, but is our heart a heart after God's heart? As was said of David, a man after God's own heart. The desires that govern our prayers must be desires that echo the desires in the heart of God's. See, the need here is to ensure that our desires correspond to the Lord's desires. And that's again where those uh, with, a, if you like, a strict Calvinistic theology sometimes struggle. 
If my desire must correspond with God's desire, therefore I need to know who's elect to therefore pray for their salvation. Because God's heart's desire is to save those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And therefore, I need to know that. But that is taking the scriptural logic one step too far. What we can see in the Word of God is that God does have a heart to save lost souls. His desire is to see souls brought to Christ Jesus. And we see that because the word for desire used here in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, is the same word used over in Ephesians chapter 1. Please turn across to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse number 5, again referring to God's predestining purpose unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And here's the language. According to, and I'm going to put it this way, according to the desire of his will. Same word. The good pleasure of God's will is the desire of his will. His free will desires to bring sinners into adoption of his family. The same language is used over in the verse number 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. So God's desire, God's good pleasure, brings us into the electing love of God before time began. But that same good pleasure then makes known to us the gospel. The desire of God, the good pleasure of God, governs his workings in election and in the application of the gospel. But what you must notice is that when we pray for God to save souls, we are praying according to the general revelation of the heart of God. It is his eternal good pleasure to save lost souls. And God has not given us the insight to know those that are elect and those that are not. And as we believe in the free offer of the gospel, offering Christ to all souls without discrimination, so we could say we believe in the free offering of prayer for those that are out of Christ without discrimination. We have no knowledge of those who are elect and those who are not, but we do have the certain knowledge that God does indeed desire to save lost souls. And as long as we live in this world, we know that God is still desiring to save lost souls. And we're praying for God's heart to be manifest in the salvation of sinners. And so whilst we live without knowing the secret things of God, we have the permission, I believe, and the example of the Apostle Paul here, to pray for God's good pleasure to be done. Thy desire be done. Thy good pleasure be done in the saving of souls. Yes, we will govern our prayers in some way by God's will. We may pray for souls in particular, for particular individuals, and we may pray in the knowledge that God's will will be done in their lives. But we are certainly at liberty to pray for God to save souls. In fact, beyond that, this blessed truth of election and God's good pleasure, rather than hindering our burden for souls, actually motivates our burden to pray. See, we're not praying in a context that we don't know that God's going to save souls. We're not praying today without any confidence that God may save souls tomorrow. 
the doctrine of divine election and the governance of God over all things, ensuring that His will be done, is a motivation for us to pray, Lord, you've chosen to save souls, save them for your glory. We can pray in that way with great confidence, and so we're not hindered in our praying, but actually our prayers are motivated and intensified. I think it's like God's words of encouragement to Paul in Corinth. He's fearful, he's concerned regarding the gospel, and the Lord says to him, I have much people in this city. Therefore, keep on preaching. Well, I say to you, God has much people in this world. His elect souls yet to be gathered into the kingdom. They're in this world, Jews and Gentiles together. Lord, bring them in. You see, we see in chapter 9 and verse 11, the blessed truth, and that whoever believes on Christ shall not be ashamed. Again, that connects back to chapter 9, verse 33. But note, please, the language of verse number 12. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. It is the Lord's good pleasure to save souls. Therefore, please pray for God to save souls. But secondly, as we think of this prayer, note the hardness that Paul confronts in this prayer. You see, Paul sees the situation and the conduct of his people, and he's troubled. He sees, again, these three things. He sees man's blindness. Man's foolishness and man's lostness. He sees man's blindness initially. Look what he says about them. They've a zeal for God, verse 2, but not according to knowledge. For they've been ignorant of God's righteousness. There's an ignorance here. There's a blindness in their hearts. They're ignorant of God's provided righteousness. God's righteousness. And this ignorance, and by the way, the word ignorant here is a word that speaks of no knowledge. They are devoid of knowledge of God's righteousness. That is despite them having the revelation of the truth in the word of God. Remember chapter 9, verse number 31. It says, But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness. So they have a knowledge of God's word and God's will. As it says in chapter 9, verse 4, they have the law of God. They know something of the necessity of righteousness. So in what sense are they therefore ignorant of God's righteousness? Because of distinction here. There is a law of righteousness, but they do not understand about the provision of God's righteousness. They certainly could be said to recognize their own need for righteousness. Verse number two, they have a zeal of God. They understand their need to stand before God. They, they, they recognize their need for righteousness back in chapter 9. They, they see all those things. And so they engage in the worship of God. Chapter 9, verse 4, they're involved in the service of God. They also knew that God would save through a Messiah. Again, chapter 9, verse 4, they are given the covenants and the promises. Those covenants and those promises point forward to a Messiah, a Savior of sinners. So what do they know? They know of God. They know of a need for righteousness. They know of a need of salvation. They know of a need of salvation through a Savior, promised to come. But yet in all of this, they are still ignorant of God's righteousness. Because verse 3 says, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They're spiritually blind. They could not see their own Messiah. They could not see that He is the very righteousness of God in incarnate form. And thus they would not submit to Him. He is the stumbling stone and the rock of offense over whom they stumble in verse number 33. See the connections? 
The righteousness of God is not an abstract concept in this context. It's not this idea of, of simply being right with God. It's referring to the person of Jesus Christ. They're ignorant of God's provided righteousness in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. They don't see that because of their blindness. And so chapter 11, verse number 9, or sorry, verse, chapter 11, verse 7 says this, that Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Again, we're seeing here the sovereignty of God over their circumstances. Their eyes are darkened, verse number 10, that they may not see. But also alongside that, again, we keep things in balance. God is sovereign over the response. But yet, verse number 21 of chapter 10 says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So they are blinded in God's sovereign justice, but they're also blinded in their own desire to remain blind to the gospel. They're responsible for their condition. But they will not find themselves submitting to God's righteousness. Such is their blindness, despite tremendous theological knowledge, the knowledge of God and yet not seeing Christ Jesus, which leads secondly to their foolishness. Paul reflects upon their zeal of God. It is troubling, isn't it? To observe this world and see people seeking God in all the wrong places. They have within themselves a conscious awareness of God and a recognition of their need to be in right relationship with that God and yet they pursue God in all the wrong places. It is a mark of man's depravity how they misuse the truth or ignore the truth. They profess to have true religion. They have a zeal for God, verse number 2. But their conviction and their zeal doesn't make them true. We have a, a very, very strong Protestant population back in Northern Ireland. There are many and they're born into Protestant homes. And they're raised in the Word of God. And they, many of them have a zeal for the present faith as they see it. They express that zeal in various orders and, again, various societies. And there are many, and they would say they have a zeal for the present faith in the Reformation. And yet the evidence is clear they have no knowledge of the true God. It is very possible for people to be zealous for faith without believing that very same faith. It's true for the Jew, but it's also true for the liberal Protestant in her own day. This area, we've, we've done the doors in this area, you know we have, and been around various homes. And there are many, and they attend a Catholic church. There are others, and they're part of liberal Protestant churches. And each and every one, if you say to them, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Yes. Do you believe in the need for salvation? Yes often they will understand some of those concepts. And they have a zeal even. They'll attend their church and they'll be there Lord's Day by Lord's Day. But they do not know the Savior. Such is the blindness of the human heart. Religious, but dead in sin. What's the only hope? For God to open their hearts. For God to open their eyes. Therefore, when we contemplate the blindness of those around us, surely it must motivate us to pray. 
for those who worship, those who sit under the Word of God, who express truth regarding the Bible and salvation, all of these things, but yet they do not know the Lord. They're like the demons who know of God and tremble. But they have not submitted to God's righteousness. And their only hope is in the power of God, to which then we pray. Their blindness and their foolishness, of course, also their lostness. Their lostness is implied here in verse number 1, that they might be saved. This lostness refers to their danger and their need to be delivered from that danger, that they might be saved. Now, the the salvation that Paul has in mind here in Romans is is very, very clear. Turn back to chapter 5. He refers to salvation. Chapter 5 and verse number 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Again, Paul's theme in Romans has been to establish the truth of God's righteousness in Christ Jesus as the remedy to the wrath of God. Paul understands salvation in Romans in connection with God's wrath against sin. We saw this morning, a just God is angry and provoked by the ungodliness of people around us. And so look at chapter 1. Remember the very theme? The gospel is the power of God and salvation. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Verse 17. But what is the necessity of this righteousness? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's the necessity. And so we're reading of lost souls here in Romans 10. Paul's burden is that they might be saved. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that when Paul is praying for souls to be saved, he's praying for them to be rescued from the eternal fires of hell and from the wrath of God. And sometimes we pray for souls because we think, well, wouldn't it be nice if they came to our church? And wouldn't they have a better life if they came to Christ? And yes, they would. But as Paul has a burden for souls, he has in his own mind and in his heart a recognition of the wrath of God against sin. And it troubles his heart and it stirs his soul. I think you understand the the vision that John had in Revelation chapter 14, the verse number 9. And those that worship the beast and receive the mark upon his forehead, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, poured out without measure into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night. I think I have probably failed to preach enough on the wrath of God and the reality of eternity in hell. I came into the ministry, into the Bible College of our Presbytery back in Northern Ireland in 2006. It's quite a number of years. I don't think I've preached enough upon the wrath of God in the place of hell. If we really understood this, we would really pray and we'd really call upon God to save souls. The mere compassion of the human heart 
would be that those that we love and those who are near to us will be rescued from the eternal wrath of God. Saved only by Christ's blood. We have the hope and the confidence in God's electing grace that as all humanity deserves to go into eternal hell, God is willing to save and pluck some brands from the burning. We must be burdened to pray over these things. The blindness and the foolishness and the lostness of these people burdens Paul's heart and he calls them to God. But finally, as we close tonight, note the hope in his prayer. There certainly are various things that burden our hearts to pray. We've referred to the reality of God's justice and God's judgment. That burdens our heart to pray. God's grace burdens our hearts to pray. We know grace and we want others to know the same grace. We know the joy of the Lord. We want others to know that same joy. It's also true the Spirit of God in our hearts and the rebirth burdens us to pray. It's the Spirit of grace and supplication. He, he, he puts grace upon our hearts to pray. That burden is certainly enhanced as we see people rejecting their opportunity. Paul is lamenting the fact they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They have this opportunity, and they're ignorant of that righteousness revealed to them in the Word of God. And he's burdened for their souls. But I also think we pray, and know a burden to pray, because we understand that salvation is actually possible. That for a lost soul, they can be saved, because God has provided a righteousness Romans 1.17, in the gospel is revealed a righteousness from faith to faith. Hence Paul in chapter 10, verse number 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, I understand here, please, this is what I'm saying about interconnecting thoughts. I understand that the real system of thought here is that Paul is emphasizing the nature of God's righteousness. But I'm drawing a line from the prayer of verse 1 to verse number 4 because I think it does motivate and encourage us in the place of prayer. We're not praying for souls to save themselves. We're not praying in some forlorn hope that maybe God might show mercy to some. We are praying because salvation is possible. There is no hope without Christ, but because of Christ there is great hope. He has died. And he has lived that those who trust in him can know the righteousness of God. Christ's work is perfectly suitable to save sinners. What he did was what was needed. And so verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now you know that does not mean that the law is not a valid rule or relevant to your hearts today. It's not suggesting that Christ is the end of the law as in having put away and done with the law. That's not what it means. The word end here speaks of fulfillment or completion. It has the idea of Matthew chapter 5. He's not come to destroy the law. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill. It's a text that points to Christ's active obedience. He has obeyed the law of God perfectly. He is the fulfillment of the law so that those who trust in him can indeed become the righteousness of God in him. Came across an article by Gresham Machen, referred to him several times this year because of the Christian and Liberalism book. But it's an article that he wrote regarding the active obedience of Christ. 
And in that article, he has a dialogue between the law of God and a sinful man saved by grace. And the dialogue, I think, is is very simple, and it is profound. Let me share that dialogue with you tonight as we close. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? Well, you put your name in the man here. Just put your own name in there and say, the law's asking you tonight, so-and-so, have you obeyed the commands of God? Well, I trust your answer is the same as a sinner. Machen's dialogue continues, no, says the sinner saved by grace. I hope you say the same. I have disobeyed them, not only in the person of my representative Adam in his first sin, but also in that I myself have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Have you obeyed the law of God? No. Well then, sinner, says the law of God, have you paid the penalty which I pronounced upon disobedience? What is that penalty? The soul that sinneth it shall die. The dialogue continues. No, says the sinner, I have not paid the penalty myself. But Christ has paid it for me. He was my representative when he died out there on the cross. Hence, so far as the penalty is concerned, I am clear. Do you believe that tonight? You have broken God's law. And the law of God comes to you and says, have you paid the penalty? You've got to say, no, I haven't. I haven't died under the wrath of God, but Christ has paid it for me. And as far as the penalty is concerned, I am clear. Well then, sinner, says the law of God, how about the conditions which God has pronounced for the attainment of assured blessedness? Have you stood the test? Have you merited eternal life by perfect obedience? That is the law of God. We must merit eternal life by perfect obedience. No, says the sinner. I have not merited eternal life by my own perfect obedience. God knows and my own conscience knows that even after I became a Christian, I sinned in thought, word, and deed. But although I have not merited eternal life by any obedience of my own, Christ has merited for me by his perfect obedience. He was not for himself subject to the law. No obedience was required for him for himself, seeing he was Lord of all. The obedience then which he rendered to the law when he was on earth was rendered by him as my representative. Some wonderful thoughts. As Christ had no sin of his own to be atoned for, he had no personal need for righteousness. He's the Lord of all. And thus, in securing righteousness, he's doing it as our representative. That's me saying that I'll mention, by the way. He's our representative, our glorious representative. So the sinner continues, I have no righteousness of my own, but clad in Christ's perfect righteousness, imputed to me and received by faith alone, I can glory in the fact that so far as I am concerned, the obedience has been kept. And as God is true, there awaits me the glorious reward which Christ has earned for me. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. He's paid the penalty of our sin and secured the obedience required to attain that perfect eternal blessedness. The suitability and the sufficiency of Christ's work 
is the great hope upon which we pray for souls to be saved. What a thing it is if you believe that man must do something else. You're praying for souls to be saved in the thought that they might mess it up. Oh, if they could get this so far and then do a little more, they'd no merit with God. Can you imagine praying in a context of a, of a gospel of works religion? Whereby Christ has done a lot, but you've got to do a bit more. Whatever it might be, through church sacraments or personal effort, whatever it is, the potential of a soul messing up the whole thing. Christ has paid it all. The work is complete. It's sufficient. He is the end of the law for righteousness. Nothing else needs to be added. He's the completion, the fulfillment of the law. We don't need to add to his work. And it's an insult to suggest we could add to his work. His work is perfect and it is sufficient. And so we are calling upon God for the sake of your son, for the sake of his work. Draw sinners to faith that they might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the hope in our prayers. Because Christ has died and lived that sinners might not die but might live. Praying to God to save souls is praying for God to save souls in a salvation already provided and already secured. It's all done already. That's our great hope. You see, proper doctrine will motivate prayer. We look at three major doctrines. Election, human depravity, and justification. And all three drive us to our knees to call upon God to save lost souls. You know, you're here saved tonight. And I suspect for almost all of us, if not all of us, someone prayed for your soul before you came to Christ Jesus. You're an answer to someone's prayer. And even beyond that, Christ is praying for lost souls. Ask of me, and I will give the heathen for thy inheritance. As Christ prays, let us join in Christ's prayers and ask God to save souls for the glory of his name and for their eternal good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we're trying to understand these things and it's always a difficulty in our minds to join together your sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility to, to preach the word and to, to pray for souls. Dear Father, we pray that even as we would perhaps find ourselves struggling to grasp all of the various connections, may we rest upon the example of the Apostle Paul. And may we find ourselves praying to thee for our kith and for our kin, for our brethren according to the flesh, for those lost souls of the nations. As we sang in that, in that hymn, let there be light. Oh God, in darkest places, let there be light. In the dark recess of some unconverted soul, let there be light tonight. Oh God, you alone can save the soul, but you've promised to save. Therefore, save, O God, according to your word and according to your good pleasure. Save, we pray, tonight. We have souls again upon our own hearts and minds. 
Lord, you know your will for their lives. We look to thee in wrath. Remember mercy. See if we pray. Help us, O God, to be faithful in this endeavor. As a church family, we pray week by week and day by day. And that, God, in your good pleasure, you'd hear our cries for this neighborhood. That you'd see us, O Lord, do work for the gospel of Christ and for his church. Help us tonight. Help us to do something for God. And to pray. To pray for those outside of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.